Leadership, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starfleet Leadership Academy, its ongoing mission to develop leaders through Star Trek, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. A leadership development podcast told through the lens of Star Trek, the Starfleet Leadership Academy, available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Pixel Therapy is a member of the But Why Though Podcast Network. Go to butwhythopodcast.com for an inclusive geek community offering pop culture news, reviews, and podcasts. There's a lot of things that autistic people uh, don't put up with in terms of societal bullshit that um, I think a lot of holistics, they conform to expectations that aren't really fitting them either. I've even kind of started moving away from the term neurotypical and started saying mm. neuroconforming instead. Because I think at the end of the day, is anybody really cis? Is anybody I, really neurotypical? Or are they just conforming to what they're being forced to be? Yes. And there's some of us who aren't doing that. Being autistic is fucking cool. Being trans is fucking cool. Like, you're welcome that I'm bracing you with both. Welcome to Pixel Therapy, the video game podcast where we look at the games we play through the lens of the player, where what you play is just as important as how you play it, and where emotional intelligence is a critical stat. Every other week, we bring on a guest who may or may not consider themselves a gamer to discuss the games that have made them and changed them, and all the feelings they have about our favorite pastime. I'm your co-host, Jamie, pronouns she, her. And I'm your co-host, Spencer, pronouns they, them. And this is Pixel Therapy. Let's start, as we always do, with our Patreon shoutouts. This is our special thank you to everyone who subscribed at our Patreon name in the credits tier for the month of April. Today, we're saying a very, very big thank you to Val, Genevieve, Lindsay, Grace, Jackie, Ben, Pimatai, and Adianka. Remember, if you want to get your name in the credits, you can hop on over to patreon.com slash pixeltherapypod where you can subscribe. And for as little as just $2 a month, you'll get access to our monthly bonus series co-op mode in our May episode. Uh, we talked about Bug Snacks, the Isle of Big Snacks expansion, and Matt Reeves' The Batman that Spencer was coerced into watching <laughs> against their will. I mean, <laughs> but not I against love their me enjoyment. Some art paths, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have to twist your arm too hard. <laughs> if you're a fan of what we do here on Pixel Therapy, please consider sharing us with your friends and family, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, or you can even write into the show by emailing us at pixeltherapypod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line. All right, Spencer, it's time to get cozy. It's time to pull up an armchair. Feel free to lie down on the couch. And let's talk about our feelings. How are you doing today? I'm good, Jamie. I'm well. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to, love tell to hear you it. about an adventure I went on. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> what you adventure is that? And everyone. Okay. So last weekend, my boyfriend and I went to the Herkimer Diamond Mines in upstate New York. Oh, sounds <laughs> fancy. It sounds fancy. I guess it's um, allegedly classified as a resort by the people who classify oh. those types of things. Who does that, do you uh, wonder? Great question. I wonder if it's a similar <laughs> panel to the, oh shit, what was it, the film festival that nominated the game before and the oh. panel was like Elijah Wood and... Yeah, was it Sundance? Was that Cannes? Yeah. Sundance? 
Maybe. Yeah, one of those. We're <laughs> this not is a terrible people. joke. I just, I think the, I'm, all, the whole joke was just that I think, I wonder if Elijah Wood is on this panel as well. Yeah, that was, that was a good one, Jamie. I love the jokes we have to explain. Those are the funniest ones. Okay, fine. You know what? Maybe I'll just cut this out of the episode. What do you think about that? Hmm? Oh, she has all the power. Um, no, but okay. So we went to this diamond mine and they aren't real diamonds. They are quartz. Uh, a crystal that uh, is the the crystal that occurs here is so faceted and have such great angles that they look like diamonds. And the uh, resort (laughs) was quick to inform us that these were like the, the value of them was really legit. The Kardashians have worn them. So these are like, Oh, well, the Kardashians. (laughs) I mean, you know, (laughs) That's, that's the standard by which we measure pop culture these days, people. Are they the ones who decide what a resort is? <laughs> Maybe. Um, but uh, so the attraction is that you, any person, gets to bring your own mallet and bucket and you get to go into the mines and uh-huh. break apart rocks in an attempt uh-huh. to find your own Herkimer diamonds. Okay, that aren't so, really diamonds. That aren't that are really quartz. diamonds. That are quartz. Yeah. And for the most part, it's like what you can hope to find is maybe like a little vein of the crystal in the in a mm, rock. Mm-hmm. But they claim okay. that, you know, some people, they break apart a rock and there's a whole honking guy in there and you can wow. get it appraised and you can get jewelry made out of it and whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I was expecting. Also, you can camp there. Okay. I will say the camping portion was beautiful. Um, uh, there's this big creek river thing running by the site, and they had bathrooms that they were cleaning like every hour. Like it was oh, that wow. part I really enjoyed. It was very clean bathrooms. I hate I, can't, I hate public <laughs> restrooms. And yeah. when I camp, I'm the type of person who would rather go bury my shit than go to a public restroom. <laughs> but I actually went this place, so that's <laughs> a plus for me. <laughs> Great. Um, and uh, just, yeah, they had nice sites. They're well-maintained. Um, but the attraction was that you paid money to basically enter. I'll, I'll have, I have two examples that immediately came to mind as I entered the scene here at this mine. Mm-hmm. One was the Stardew Valley Quarry, Ooh, which is literally yeah. Good pull. Uh, in Stardew Valley, the farming game. You cross mm-hmm. this bridge eventually and you enter this big rocky circle full mm-hmm. and the whole thing is full of rocks and you need to spend your first like a full ass day with your pickaxe breaking mm-hmm. apart each rock that was mm-hmm. literally us yeah okay the okay. second example that came to mind was was it caligula the first level of tales of arise uh the <laughs> jrpg where yeah. you start the game as the, as iron mask a <laughs> man who is toiling away in a blazing hot mine <laughs> so I wouldn't say either of those are great comparisons. Like, not that they're not app comparisons, but neither of these are things that I would want to spend a weekend doing. Yeah, it was like back-breaking labor <laughs> under the hot sun. There was like, you needed to bring your own water. So if you got really thirsty, you needed to like trudge your way out of, like the sun is beating on the rocks. The rocks are reflecting mm-hmm. the light. Mm-hmm. There's no moisture to be had. It is just like <laughs> you're inside a bowl, a rock, a stone bowl. And all uh-huh. around you, people are, you're chink, 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 chink. <laughs> Like chipping away at rocks on the ground. And so do you, do you pay for this privilege? You pay for this privilege. 
Okay. And you have to lug around your bucket of rocks. Mm -hmm. So within like 20 minutes, I was like, tink, tink, tink. Okay, (laughs) fuck this. I feel like I'm in in the like, I'm cosplaying what it's going to be like in the Trump work camps for trans people right now. Like, I'm just like, (laughs) I was not enjoying it. Yeah. Um, My partner, I got, he's very into like, I don't know. He likes to do things with his hands. He's an yep. engineer. He was like, whoa, mm-hmm. look at all the rocks, baby. Look, look at the sparkle. I'm just like, great, you have fun. I went and got some lemonade. I sat in the shade. Sounds I watched more my speed. him work, which was kind of hot. But like for the most part, I was just like, this is something that like only like white cis people <laughs> can enjoy. Like, I don't really know what the attraction here is. <laughs> like, white cis people who have never known hardship, I guess. Like, <laughs> like, or like playing in a garden. I feel like you can get the same level. And at least when you're done with a uh, garden, you've got something to show for it. I just, I had never known that this was a thing that people did here in this area of the world and I needed to tell someone. So yeah, it was kind of an experience I had and I was just kind of like, am I, is it me or is it the miners who are wrong? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That doesn't sound enjoyable to me, but I also kind of would, I think this is an extreme version of it, but I think the, uh, the more palatable version of this, for me personally, being someone who, who moved to the Northeast from the Midwest and was not familiar with this as a thing that people do, but apple picking, where That's you fun. go to an orchard and pick your own <laughs> apples and then pay for them. <laughs> but you can get the donuts. I'm not, I'm not and... saying it's not. Like, it's, fi- it's fine. It's fine. That's it's fine. It's enjoyable pastoral. to go with friends. And it's certainly not backbreaking labor, yeah. like actual mining. Like I'm saying, the mining is the extreme. It's this concept drawn out to the nth degree. Yes. But I do see this as a continuation of the idea of the apple orchard where you go Absolutely. pick your own apples. Absolutely. Uh, that's all. That's all. The, that's just the line that I'm drawing there. I guess maybe I would say if you're going to visit the Herkimer Diamond Mines, visit in the fall or the early spring. Late spring, summer is not a good time to be toiling yeah. in a rock bowl. But um, so I'm spending this weekend doing something, doing the exact opposite of that. Yeah, which is sit in an air conditioned room and play a Nintendo Switch game. I love that for you. What are you playing? <laughs> so I'm playing this game called Journey of the Broken Circle. It's by mm. Denmark-based studio Lovable Hat Cult. And I'm going to read what um, two of the creators of the game, Andrea and Patrick, um, from the Copenhagen-based studio, what they have to say about the game is this. It's a game about this little something that always seems to be missing. A better job, a nicer place to live, an ideal relationship. We wanted to tell the story of self-discovery in a fun, universal, and relatable way. We probably also wanted to answer our own questions. Would the circle find what it was looking for? Or how would it all end? So The Journey of the Broken Circle is a side-scrolling narrative platformer. Um, You are a little circle with a slice cut out of it, kind of like an incomplete pizza or (laughs) Pac-Man. I was instantly drawn to the game because one of my favorite books as a child was The Missing Piece Meets the Big O by Shel Silverstein, author of The Giving Tree. Folks are familiar, Mm -hmm. familiar with that title. Um, and it's this really simple story about just like this game, 
um, it's actually your this wedge or the the character in the book is a wedge, mm-hmm. and the wedge finds it because it's a three sided shape. It's very difficult for it to move. It kind of just mm-hmm. flops over, flops over, flops over. It convinces itself that in order for its life to be complete, it needs to find someone to be their better half, someone who mm. can you know, they can be the missing piece for, and then together they'll form a perfect circle that will be able to roll. Mm-hmm. So spoilers for anyone who doesn't really <laughs> want to know what happens in this 30-year-old book. Um, Fast forward if you don't want to hear the spoilers Yeah, for this 30-year-old children's book. <laughs> the missing piece tries to roll with various uh, other shapes, and it tries to make itself fit into spaces because it would rather... Uh, you know, change its own shape rather than um, be alone, that fear of being alone, of being incomplete. And over the course of the book, it finds, it rolls with some folks for a time, it separates, it realizes that it doesn't fully match up. And at the end of the book, instead of finding that perfect missing other half, the shape actually realizes that, um, uh, sorry, they actually meet a perfect circle, someone who, who doesn't have any piece missing. Mm-hmm. And the, the missing piece is like, how did you become this perfect circle? How, like, how do I be like you? Uh, who did you find to complete you? And it turns out that that perfect circle used to be a three-sided shape itself. And it learned to roll on its own. And it realized that as it rolled, its edges began to soften. And over time, as it taught itself to be on its own and to appreciate itself for what it was and its own journey, it slowly turned into a circle too. Wow. Yay! (laughs) That's fucking beautiful. It's an awesome book. Shel Silverstein, man. Yeah, he really knew what the fuck he was talking about. He really did. He really did. I was a big fan of his poetry growing Mm -hmm. up. We had several of his poem books. My brother and I would actually like, we would convince our parents or family if they were visiting to like just sit in the living room and we would act out a bunch of the different poems. (laughs) We would get props and everything and like, yeah, do do the whole thing. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Uh, I loved Where the Sidewalk Ends, another great Mm. book. Mm. Folks, just go look up some Shel Silverstein poems. Do yourself a favor. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so this, when I saw this game, I was like, oh, this, this has to be inspired by the book because, um, what, what happens in the game is as this circle, you're trying to find other shapes to complete you in order to, um, you know, find fulfillment on your journey, reach Mm self-actualization. And so the game is kind of about relationships, about, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the darkness inside of us that sometimes calls out, um, the what it takes to be your own person. Um, and it's it's short. It's only, uh, folks, I think time to beat is saying it's around three to five hours. Um, I would say definitely like around five hours for me if you're someone who's a bit of a completionist. Um, and it just has this very like easygoing, slightly surreal, um, very soothing art style and, and presence. Um, I think the way it looks at relationships, it it has this very frank, uh, sort of earnest approach where uh, it really takes a truthful look at why we might engage in relationships and and kind of the ways in which we seek what we're looking for and may not always find it. Um, but there isn't like this undercurrent of like angst dragging it down or a lot mm. of relationship drama. It's just it's very 
kind and, and almost detached in how it's encapsulating these things. Mm. Um, I think a lot of that too is informed by this sort of Buddhist, um, almost existential philosophy underlying all of it. Um, like there's even this, there's these lessons, uh, these, these sort of wise characters that, uh, that appear and, and sort of drop some knowledge and then disappear again. And, um, you know, some of those things are Buddhist teachings, like around how at all pain comes from attachment and detachment is the only way to achieve happiness. And that happiness itself isn't even a goal, but the path itself is happiness. Happiness is something that you manifest and create every day. Mm -hmm. um, all of this among this tale where you're this little circle going across these platforms and finding mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> and when you eat the mushrooms, you you get all like, Ooh, yeah, you get high. Yeah, you get high. <laughs> and it really just feels like a long, um, nice, soothing trip. <laughs> <laughs> In more ways than one. In more ways than one. So what's so, the actual, <laughs> sorry, is, yeah, can I ask, uh, yeah. what's, the, what's the actual like, minute to minute gameplay then is it are you more just like moving through the world and experiencing the story so it's like very minimal mechanics or is it like is it when i first saw so i am somewhat familiar with this game i like saw a trailer for it and it just intrigued me i think it had really cool music and like a simple but mm -hmm. like pretty art style kind of pastel colors um so it's in like my wish list on playstation but i've never like picked it up but it's like cheap i think it's like, like an eight eight dollar game mm -hmm. um is is it puzzle solving? Is it platforming? Or is it is it really just pretty much you're just moving? It's you're not really facing any barriers at all. You're just kind of moving through the game and getting told the narrative. I would describe it as linear platforming. Like there are definitely okay. some areas where you can die and you may have to repeat the level or you might have to um get a move just right to surpass a certain obstacle. Okay. But that's like very much by narrative design. Mm. Um, I would say thematically, like in terms of the type of platforming, it kind of felt like a much, much easier Celeste, like climbing mm. and getting through a mountain and sort of navigating upwards mobility with limited physics is like mm -hmm. a very big part of it. But it's a lot less frustrating than mm -hmm. similar games in that kind of milieu <laughs> yeah is there like any real difficulty to it or is it um there were a couple levels where i i i guess i measure difficulty by my level of frustration yeah, when proceeding yeah. through something and i would say it's like two out of five stars with five okay. being the most difficult there were a couple like... sections i had to practice and and actually work to get through okay so there is like a is there like a fail state or it's it's just that you you have to just keep trying until you get to the next area? It's like checkpointing, thankfully, okay. where like <laughs> after certain particularly difficult sections, it will mm -hmm. auto save. So if you die after that, you'll just get brought back to a checkpoint. OK, OK. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, sounds like pretty accessible, low resistance. Yeah, I think this game was particularly refreshing because of its levity and humor. Like it really feels like talking to an enlightened person or mm -hmm. sort of a sage older family member who is super non-judgmental like it just has this very comforting and 
frank approach to life. It's not shying mm. away from the pain of it, but it also is tender in in making sure that you let yourself be open to the realities of life. Mm. Um, so I would say like it deals with some real stuff like depression, you know, what is the meaning of life? Is there even a point to life? Um, but does so in the most enjoyable way that I've that I've encountered in recent memory. I think if anyone's a fan of Duncan Trussell and Pendleton Ward's The Midnight Gospel, the animated show mm. on Netflix, um, you'll definitely be a fan of this game. It's got that mm-hmm. same sort of tongue-in-cheek, existential, trippy, but zen outlook um, mm. that mm-hmm. I think as a younger person, I was maybe too afraid of death to appreciate like a much younger person. I'm still a young person, but like, I feel like <laughs> I'm at a point in my adulthood where I'm able to appreciate what this stuff is telling me and not try to hold on so tightly to what I think my life is supposed to look like or what relationships mm-hmm. are supposed to look like. Um, yeah. So really just a really enjoyable game, uh, a much needed meditation in some ways. Um I think if anyone's struggling um, or even if you're like doing good, (laughs) (laughs) it's just a really sweet, short, important little game. And I'm glad that I played it. And I also think that it does a lot of justice to uh, if it was inspired by Shel Silverstein, I, I think that it's, you know, a 2020 it came out in 2020, um, mm-hmm. but it's like a 2020s version of that for adults, same yeah. kind of story. So if you love that awesome. book as a child, check out Journey of the Broken Circle. Um, it's just a couple bucks on the Switch and PS5. It's everywhere. So check it out. Loved it. Jamie, what are you up to? <laughs> uh, uh, well, that's great. I, I definitely want to check that game out then. I'd been circling it for a while like i mentioned Ah, circle (laughs) jokes we're so funny today um i played a little game i also played a little game uh the one i played is a bit more of a puzzler than a platformer but there is some platforming elements the game i played is called lego builders journey This is a game developed by Lightbrick Studio and published by the Lego Group. It originally released on Apple Arcade in December of 2019 for for iPhones, but in the, gosh, like three years since, it's come to Windows, Switch, and Xbox, and then just recently in in April of this year, it released on PS4 and PS5. Um, Lego Builder's Journey is, like I said, it's a puzzle game, but the puzzles are very realistically detailed Mm. Lego sets uh, with little, very realistic looking little Lego characters. And they're puzzle platformers in the sense that you are given a scene on the screen with these, these detailed Lego sets and the character is trying to get from point A to point B in the little Lego set. And you have to build them a path using a selection of of unused Legos that is kind of sitting there on the screen for you to use. Um, the animation of the game is definitely like the like the standout and what initially drew me to it. It is incredibly detailed and realistic looking Lego sets. Yeah, I played this on PS5, so I don't know uh, exactly how this transfers to playing it on mobile. I would expect it's it's still like the visual quality is still quite good. But on PS5, I mean, 
the between the audio and the visual of the game, it really captures the like tactile feel of playing with Legos, which is not mm. something I personally had done since I was <laughs> a little kid. I mean, maybe like early teens is probably the last time I actually like used Legos in any way. And it's not like um, it's not like it's giving you directions on what to do or anything like that. It's a very creative game. And the solutions that you can come up with can be creative, too. Usually I have a handful of different pieces and it's not like there's just one way to solve the puzzle that they're presenting you with. You can kind of use the pieces however you want. Mm. You might place a piece, have the character step on it. Um, place another piece, have the character step on the second piece, and then take the first piece and bring that around and put that in front of the character again, that kind of a thing. Or you could choose to use all the pieces at your disposal to try to create a straight path for the character to go on. You can kind of solve it however you want. Um, so it has this kind of like playfulness to yeah. it as well that actually makes you feel like you're you're building Legos in the best way. Is there like haptic feedback in the controller, like when with the Legos at all? No, unfortunately, I don't. I could be misremembering, but I'm pretty sure there was not any haptic feedback in the controller, which which is too bad. And I will say that for as awesome as the visuals are on the PS5, uh, I do think that this is a game that probably would have been better to experience on mobile, which is a rare mm. thing for me to think or say. But something that happened when I was, you know, when you're playing with the controller on PS5, you have to use the D-pad to select the piece that you want to pick up and it'll kind of highlight it on the screen. And then you use the uh, the uh, symbol buttons to kind of turn the piece around. And then you've got to try to kind of like position it. And you're using the sticks to turn the, the set, the Lego set around and try to get the right position and line it all up. And there are plenty of times where I would like click to press the piece and it would mm. not press it where I wanted to press it. So I'd have to pick it back up and try to put it in exactly the right spot. I think all of that would have been a lot easier mm -hmm. on touch because you can just click the piece, spin it, click exactly where you want it to go, and it goes there. I think that that it's probably an even better experience on mobile. So I think if you do have iPhone, Apple Arcade, this is a would be a great thing to try out. Um, cool. It didn't wasn't enough to like ruin the experience for me or anything on on PlayStation, and and I prefer to play on the big screen. And again, it was absolutely gorgeous, and the audio is so well done. It's still a really good experience, but I do think that that might have been a better and even more tactile way to do it of actually touching the the Lego pieces and placing mm -hmm. them. Um, the game actually surprisingly has a pretty moving little like story that plays out. There's no dialogue in the game. It's just like some kind of like chill vibes music playing nice. while you're you're working on these really detailed Lego sets. But the story plays out between a a, a parent and and their child mm. that is you know i don't want to spoil anything the whole game's only about two hours but it's definitely exploring themes of how we grow out of being playful and creative how careers and capitalism can kind of suck away our, our ability to be creative things okay, that were like that were like initially fun to do become yeah. uh less fun when they are systematized and the creativity is stripped away from or the option to be creative is stripped away from them or how you even kind of like lose your ability not ability to be creative, but your desire to be creative when you're mm. put into a, in a into a system where you're doing something repetitive mm. all the time. And it also seemed to be kind of telling this story about uh, the distance between parents and their children that's created when when parents inevitably have to go to work to be able to sustain their children and mm. and how 
you know, I don't know, maybe it was a metaphor. It was supposed to be inner child, but I think you can read it both ways yeah. uh, that it was, it was, it could both be a metaphor for how the parent was distancing themselves from their inner child um, and a metaphor for how the parent and the child were like actually distanced by the parent having to consistently go to work and get mm. pulled into um, a system of, of capitalism. Uh, yeah. And then there's kind of like this stuff that plays out where the child character is using their imagination to go and like free the parent from Aww. from their like kind of like much grimmer situation in in a in a job like in a factory kind of scenario. Yeah. So it was very like sweet and moving. Played out over those couple of hours. The puzzles were fun and just like really beautiful, beautifully designed game uh, that made me wanna do Legos. Oh so- my god. I finished Lego Builder's Journey and I had already had my eye on uh, PlayStation had announced just like a week or so before I played the game or a few weeks before I played the game that they were going to be doing a Horizon Forbidden West tall neck Lego set. And I was like, (laughs) that's pretty cool looking, but I'm not I'm not a Lego. I think I I think I actually like slacked it to you. And I was like, whoa, look at this. And we were both like, wow. And I was like, am I going to have to get into Legos? And I was like, nah, I'm not going (laughs) to get into Legos. Like I haven't done Legos since I was like 12 years old. But then it came out and I had kind of like I'd marked the day on my calendar that was releasing just like, I'll just check it out. I'll see how much it is. Maybe I'll get it. Maybe I won't. And I played Lego Builder's Journey and I was just like, fuck, I'm going to get it. I'm just going to get it and see how this goes. And I, again, have not. So even when I played with Legos before, it was much more in like a creative way, right? As a mm-hmm. kid, you kind of just have a bunch of different bins, like all the sets get mixed together. Nothing state, you know, it's a very different experience doing Legos an adult versus a kid. I think when I was a kid, I played with them in a much more creative way um, than than what I did this time. Yeah. But getting the Horizon set, which which is a super cool set, it, it's a tall neck. It's a little over a foot tall, so it's the the giant kind of giraffe like robotic structures in in the Horizon games that kind of wander around the planes, and they've got kind of these big uh, satellite disc sort of <laughs> shaped heads <laughs> yeah. uh, that Aloy can climb. So it comes with that, and like I said, it's a little over a foot tall. And then you've got a little Aloy figurine, and she's got a little bow and arrow and her spear, and you also build a little watcher, um, which are the kind of one-eyed... Like sentinel uh, guys. Yeah, sentinel guys. They kind of look like velociraptors a little bit. Um yeah, so so you got all of those on this on this platform. And I got the set and it probably took me, I don't know, 10-ish hours to do over the course of like a week and a half, just doing it for an hour or two in the evening mm. while I zoned out. It was super fun. Mm. I really had a fucking good time doing this Lego set to the point where like I went and looked on the Lego store afterwards and like <laughs> found another set to get and do. But it was such a, I don't know, there's something really nice about, and I think this is something I appreciate about gaming too, right? Especially with the dual sense and just how great it feels to click the buttons on the dual sense, which is something we've talked about. But getting to actually use your hands to build the Lego set, I found really uh, grounding mm-hmm. and cathartic and just like removing me from a screen for a few hours yeah. a day, which is, which is tough when so much of my work uh, and, and existence and hobbies and just everything is on a screen. And the way that, you know, I'm doing this Lego set, so it's not, I don't feel like I'm being very creative, but personally as someone who just finds a certain level of, of peace, mm. like soul, like 
soul depth piece, soul deep piece in putting things in their right place mm. and having everything like fit together <laughs> just so. It was really nice to, with the Lego sets. I don't know if anyone's done a Lego set recently, but a lot of times they it they give you these pieces and you're just you're putting one or two pieces together at a time. And it's so hard to see what you're actually building until it starts mm. to come together and you start to click it together. Yeah. So you might be starting with like these all these flat, like just disparate pieces. They're kind of different colors and you're not quite sure why am I putting this random, like weirdly blue piece here. <laughs> and and they'll do that just so that you can keep track of that piece as the thing moves and shifts around. So they're really smartly designed in terms of how it all goes together. Because if you wow. put just another gray piece here, then in the next image, when they show it flipped around, you probably would have had a hard time telling where to line up the next set of pieces, but mm -hmm. because they very smartly made it this bright blue piece and it's going to get covered up anyway, uh, you can keep track of what you're doing. I don't That's know, awesome. little stuff like that is very cool. But watching it go from just a scattered box of pieces to now I've got a little tall neck sitting on my desk yeah. <laughs> uh, is pretty fucking cool. And it was just a really relaxing and soothing experience. So... Mm -hmm. I wish it was a slightly more affordable hobby. Mm. Um, the Lego sets themselves can be pretty expensive, but they do take quite a long time to put together. And I'm finding I'm enjoying this more. I think like a lot of people, I tried to get into puzzles at the top of the pandemic and I bought several puzzles and I did like one of them. And then I was just like, nah, <laughs> uh, but this is actually doing a lot more for me. I don't, I don't know quite what the difference is there between the puzzles and this, but it's a very similar process very methodical of looking for the right piece snapping it into the right location moving to the next piece yeah and i wonder too like how you said each piece comes together by design like i think with puzzles it can be stressful because you don't know if the actions you're taking are actually moving you forward mm. or if you're just continuing to flounder whereas yeah. with this like you know that every hour for every hour you invest something will continue to take shape yep which yeah, feels that's very a great rewarding point. yeah I will yeah. say, as someone who will spend days, if not weeks, if not months, thinking about a thing that I want to do, but just hemming and hawing and, and worrying over it and how to do it and what's the right way to do it and how did all these people do it and is there a best way and what if it goes wrong or what if I'm not strong enough or what if I don't have the skills? And then mm -hmm. when I finally, the day when the wind hits me right and I just try it and then I get... <laughs> 90% of it done in like an hour or something mm -hmm. like, like it's just so much easier when you start. I just love this story of how playing the game first empowered mm -hmm. you to try out the Lego, because I think for me, like I, I'm overwhelmed by this big pile of Legos. Like just the idea of opening the box and seeing all that spill out and the instructions, is giving me like a mini anxiety attack, <laughs> but like I can see how doing it in the game first where there is no mess, there is no like, yeah. there's no lost investment. There's nothing bad that's going to happen if you don't like it. And that being a bridge to further interest in the hobby is really cool to me. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see where this takes me in terms of hobbies. Uh, like I said, I want to, you know, not that I need another money sink <laughs> of a hobby because gaming is already not the cheapest hobby out there. Um, but it's been nice to unplug a little bit with with this and doing something that feels more grounded has been really nice. So, yeah, I'm working on another set now and I'm taking it really slow. Um, just, you know, 30 minutes to an hour every day or every other day. And 
using it to, you know, when I have a particularly stressful day at work, it's like a nice unwind before I go make dinner and yeah. like start the evening chores and activities. So it's been really, really good in that sense. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. That's awesome. I love that. And I can't wait to see your next creation. Thank you. (laughs) All right, let's go ahead and transition over to our interview. Today, we are super excited to be bringing you our first ever returning guest to the podcast, (laughs) Dr. Devin Price. You may recall from his last visit that Devin is a social psychologist, a professor, and an author. Last year, we spoke with him in depth about the themes explored in his book, Laziness Does Not Exist. And now he's here chatting with us about his new book, Unmasking Autism, as well as topics like experiencing empowerment through game dialogue trees how autistic folks created fandom, Link as a gender blank slate, and using Katamari Damacy as a metaphor for understanding the cyclical nature of time to separate it from our modern linear interpretation that treats it like an industrial resource. No big deal. Just a few small <laughs> few topics. light topics. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, needless to say, <laughs> we had another fascinating conversation with Devin this time around that I am certain you are all going to really enjoy. So without further ado, here's our interview with Dr. Devin Price. Hello, Devin. Welcome back to Pixel Therapy. Thank you so much for joining us in the virtual studio. Um, It's been a little bit over a year since you last joined us to talk about your book, Laziness Does Not Exist, as well as your amazing take on ICO. Um, We're so excited to welcome you back and catch up and chat about your latest book, Unmasking Autism. For folks who may not be familiar with your work uh, or with you, could you take a minute to just reintroduce yourself and your pronouns? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm uh, Devin Price, he, him. Um, I'm a social psychologist. I'm a professor at Loyola University, Chicago. Um, I'm autistic, which is uh, why I wrote or part of why I wrote uh, this most recent book. Um, and I do a lot of writing and research around a bunch of different things productivity culture, neurodiversity, um, all, all manner of other things, depending on what I'm hyperfixating and working on uh, next. But those awesome. are the two that I've published about. <laughs> and uh, it was funny, I was re-listening to our last interview. I was, as I mentioned, a couple, bit over almost a year and a half ago. And um, a question that we usually ask folks is, do you identify as a gamer? And I realized we kind of just started jumping right in last time and I didn't even have time to ask you that question. So I'd love to ask it now, Devin, do you identify as a gamer and how would you kind of characterize your relationship with video games? Yeah, I guess I have imposter syndrome. The word uh, gamer (laughs) is so fraught now, right? Like the Mm. culture around it and like how, what games you're supposed to play and how good you're supposed to be at games to call yourself a gamer is so fraught. Um, I, at this point, watch a lot more games than I actually play mm. them. I'm really interested in games as an artistic medium and a storytelling medium. So I watch a lot of playthroughs and I like backseat driving and watching other people play and being an annoying goblin on their shoulder telling them what they should do um, and how they should get good and beat you know that Elder Scrolls boss or whatever. Um, but uh, I... I don't know if I'm really a gamer anymore, even though I have all these like video game related tattoos and like a really <laughs> important part of my childhood and my writing. Mm-hmm. I'm more of like a fan of games than I am a gamer. Yeah, like a game purveyor. <laughs> like I, it's funny how uh, for me sometimes the 
the mental buildup to playing a game, it, it prevents me from ever picking it up, even if I really, really want to. But for some reason, watching someone play the game is a lot lower barrier to entry, but feels just as satisfying to like get to the major story points or experience the emotional highs and lows. Um, so I'm just curious, like, what do you love about watching streams? It's one of the closest replications that I get today to that feeling that I had growing up playing games with someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, gaming was so social. When I was growing up, me and my mom, we would take turns playing these horror PC games like The Seventh Guest and Sanitarium and things like that. And we kind of trade off playing. And my dad and I would play Tomb Raider. And he had a physical disability that made it really hard for him to like shoot in, mm. in boss battles. So uh, I would take over and like handle the bosses and then he would kind of like go explore as Laura Croft. And I had a little sister who, you know, we would play a lot of you know Mario games, Mario Party, you know, she would watch me play Zelda and things like that. And now, you know, you really don't get local multiplayer in games very much mm. anymore. And also just the way that life is, you don't get that social experience of gaming as an adult as easily. And so... I watch a lot of my friends stream. I watch a lot of people on Discord that I know. I like it when it is a little bit more intimate than that, than like a celebrity streamer, because that feels too totally impersonal. But it, it brings back that social feeling of sharing a game with someone and really mm-hmm. focusing on it and talking about it. I love that you mentioned that because um, we we recently had a streamer on the show, Queerly B, um, someone who similarly loves to kind of create uh, intimate um not to not to not necessarily celebrity streams but just like um it feels like a group of friends socializing and they particularly feel like streaming is a way for them to engage in and provide parallel play or body doubling um to folks in their community um and so hearing you speak about the social aspect of that as well it's it's true i i feel like um it's the closest thing we have in a lot of ways these days of just sitting around the tv watching someone play and chatting. Um, So I love that. Devin, you also mentioned um, some modern... So before you came on the show, you mentioned to us uh, that there's some modern games that you really enjoyed playing. Um, Disco Elysium, Oxenfree, and Life is Strange were a few titles you mentioned, um, and how they're especially interesting due to the mechanic of branching conversation simulation. I was wondering if you could tell us more about why these games and that particular element resonates with you. Yeah, I find myself today most gravitating towards playing games that are conversation simulators in some way. And I think that is very satisfying to me, both because I'm not talented as a gamer, so I'm not going to be interested in something that requires a lot of technical skill, but also because the storytelling is really rich in those kinds of games. And it really scratches this itch for me as an autistic person who misses a lot of social cues and has blundered my way through a lot of interactions. Uh, I get this experience of knowing what it's like to retake a conversation over again and see how it would have gone if I had thought to say something differently. Um, So Life is Strange, the original game, the whole mechanic of that game is that you rewind time in small increments. So it's really built into the game that the first time you interact with someone, a lot of the time you're going to say something that rubs them the wrong way, or you're going to get a piece of information after talking to them that then you're going to want to rewind time and bring back in so that you can try the interaction again and have it come out and work out differently. And so that's really satisfying to me um, as someone who has wanted to be able to do that an endless number of times. Mm. And often it's not until weeks after I talk to someone that I realize 
that when they asked me a question, they really were asking something else or mm. trying to tell me something else. Mm-hmm. And that's also very similar with uh, Disco Elysium. Um, when I first played through the game, because you can kind of pick different builds for your character, different psychological attributes that they can have. And the first time I tried to play it, I picked like a very like perceptive, analytical build mm. of the character. And it was too much like being autistic already is, where you're just <laughs> noticing all these little details in your environment, but you don't understand the people. Mm. So then I switched to the high empathy build, and it was so crazy and empowering because the character would, could tell what people were feeling, and you get all this information about whether someone's lying or if you kind of weirded them out or made them uncomfortable. And it's like, oh my God, if I, as an autistic person, could have that kind of codec to mm. break down what's going on with people, I would be unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, uh, like putting on like glasses and then seeing this overlay all over it, like giving you the hint and all the tricks and ch- tips and tricks. I love that. Um, and Devin, so we touched on this a little bit already. Um, you are autistic and you've recently written a book uh, on masking autism. And your new book really affirms and celebrates the uniqueness and beauty of the neurodivergent community. Um, I found it to be very healing and relatable content. Um, I think for especially neurodivergent folks like me who are part of multiple marginalized groups, um, I've never seen my lived experiences reflected in the way um, that you framed them. Um, Of course, talking from your own experience, as well as um, interviews with with plenty of other people. and I think for neurodivergent folks who have typically seen their experiences sort of flattened and translated through an holistic or non-autistic lens, um, it's been frustrating and dehumanizing. Um, in the book, you introduce this concept of masked autism. I was wondering if you could tell us more about what does it mean to live masked, especially for more marginalized autistic folks? Yeah, so... On the whole, a lot of marginalized people who are autistic don't find out that they're autistic until much later in life than um, your conventional, stereotypically autistic white cisgender boy from a middle class and higher uh, background would tend to be diagnosed. Though, of course, there are certainly people in that category who slip through the cracks and don't get their needs met, too. Um, So when you spend your whole life up until well into adulthood, not knowing that you have a disability, you're still getting these reactions from people throughout your life that you've said something wrong, that you're too sensitive, that you Mm. can't get enough done, that the way that you get things done is strange, that your needs are strange. We get all this social feedback throughout our lives um, as autistic people that tells us that we're broken, even if we've never had the stigmatizing label placed on us um, Mm. the way some people do when they get diagnosed to childhood. So what that forces you to do is to essentially be closeted to the world and closeted even to yourself. And that's really what masking is. It's uh, trying to camouflage your disability and trying to compensate for it in ways that'll keep you from being detected by other people and to make yourself stop sticking out as strange and weird and awkward or needy or whatever else uh, it may be. Mm. Um, So masking can involve a lot of different behaviors forcing yourself to make eye contact, even if it's painful, memorizing conversational branches from TV shows and video games and books. So you know what to say when somebody brings up some small talk that you don't really 
intellectually understand the point of mm-hmm. um, imitating other people, but most of all, becoming really, really inhibited and not being authentic about who you are because you've been told over and over again that there's something wrong with that person. Mm-hmm. When masking is so prevalent, so enforced to the point where it feels normal to be masked because that's just the condition that you've been con- you've been trained to believe is what what your life is supposed to look like or or how things are supposed to feel what can it look like to begin the process of unmasking and why is it so important to the future of the autistic self advocacy community yeah so i'll start by answering the latter question of why it's so important we know that masking takes a really severe psychological toll on autistic people. It's really cognitively taxing and exhausting to pretend to be something that you're not and to suppress all of your kind of natural behaviors and feelings. Um, just on an existential level, that's a horrible way to live. Mm-hmm. And we do know it's associated with substance use disorders, self-harm, eating disorders, and a really pronounced uh, risk of suicide ideation and suicide attempts. So even just on an individual level, the suffering of not living in a way that's true to who you are is really immense. And it's also a real big problem from a disability advocacy perspective, because when we aren't asking to have the lights dimmed or the music turned down, when we aren't visible at events because we'll get stared at for flapping our hands or wiggling Mm. in our seats, spaces don't accommodate us. Uh, This is a problem that a lot of different disabled communities face where You don't go out into the world or you don't go out into a space because it's not accessible to you. And then the people in that space never see you and they think that you're not even trying to access that space. They never even think to start making uh, overtures to include you because it seems like it isn't a problem. So this lack of visibility and lack of self-advocacy that comes from us masking our needs and kind of withdrawing from the world uh, just means that our exclusion in society continues on unchallenged. Mm. In terms of how we go about unlearning that masking, it's such a weird paradox because it's not like there's this final state of perfect authenticity that you can ever arrive into as a person. Um, We're always changing. Our situation around us is always changing. Our feelings are always shifting and we're growing. So it's not the case that we can just take off the mask one day and decide to never suppress any autistic behavior ever (laughs) again and be like, fully self-actualized, right? It's a process. And as much as full authenticity is something that we'll never quite reach, inauthenticity is very real and very palpable. So Mm -hmm. it's really all about moving away from those situations where you are really severely pressured to not be yourself and cultivating relationships with other neurodivergent people who are going to accept you as you are and who can maybe even get you to start believing that all of the odd things about you that you used to hate might Mm. be beautiful because they're beautiful in other people too. So I'm a big advocate of just kind of getting out into nerdy communities, meeting other autistic people, socializing with autistic people online, surrounding yourself with the community um, because that's the number one shame buster. It's Mm. true for queer people and it's true for disabled people as well. I want to back up a little bit and dig deeper on something that you brought up a few minutes ago, which is about how um, this is something you bring up early in the book, which is about how um, white 
middle to upper class boys have kind of become this prototype, if you will, for how clinicians and the media often talk about autism. Um, And this is a really narrow definition for multiple of reasons for what it looks like to be autistic. Um, And it's super harmful, um, not just socially, but also clinically. Um, There's this thing, uh, there's one result of this is, um, you know, how you describe so-called quote unquote female autism, which is something that I've also heard of. Um, And it's, if folks aren't familiar with the the context, it's um, this alleged subtype of autism that's often described as like milder or uh, more, uh, I think Devin used the phrase, socially camouflaged than what you'd consider, I guess, autism classic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, like, what is the deal with this conflation of neurodiversity and gender? And why is it so problematic? Yeah, so the myth that autism is milder in girls basically arises from the fact that girls' suffering isn't taken seriously. Um, Mm. And the diagnostic criteria for autism, all of the assessments, uh, the ones that we still use in the psychological community to this day, were all developed with young, white, cisgender boys with kind of conventionally masculine interests like trains and planes and, you know, shark species and things like that um, in mind. And through that lens, a lot of people are going to slip through the cracks. And even a lot of people with pretty textbook, stereotypical, um, if you like, uh, autistic traits are going to be ignored when the image that you have in your mind is that autism looks like a white boy with that kind of background. So what happens is there are a lot of autistic girls and other people who have really rigid, uh, obsessive special interests that are textbook autism, but because their special interest is horses or makeup um, or something that isn't uh, science and math and kind of stereotypically masculine, it's not seen as an autistic special interest. Um, You might see an autistic girl who is very socially withdrawn and shy But because it's very socially desirable for girls to be quiet, that's not seen as a problem, no no matter how much anguish that girl might actually be in. And so um, we really don't have any clinical evidence that autism actually is milder in girls or that there's this subtype of autism that manifests super differently in girls. All we have is evidence of these really pervasive biases in who gets assessed and if they do get assessed what they get diagnosed with so another um, really important piece of this is the racism that's baked in Mm. Um, a lot of black autistic kids especially black autistic boys who exhibit again textbook autistic traits they get diagnosed with things like oppositional defiant disorder as kids instead which you've never if you've never heard of odd it's I hope a disorder that is consigned to the ash heap of history relatively soon, because it's basically just doesn't follow instructions disorder. Um, And to say that any black kid who's struggling and maybe has a disability and isn't always doing what they're told has some kind of defiance disorder, Mm. that's pretty insidious, pretty terrifying stuff. Um, And unfortunately, we see that in a lot of black autistics of all genders as well. Um, so these exclusions are really baked into how psychiatrists are trained to look for autism, 
teachers, school counselors, anyone who might be referring a child to get assessed, they're typically only looking for it in white boys. So no matter what autistic traits you have, if you're not a white boy um, who's pretty gender conforming, it may not even cross their mind that it's possible you could have this disability. Mm. Thank you for that. Speaking of gender, so folks, you really need to just go by Unmasking Autism because I'm going to try to distill this into a question for Devin, but like this floored me and it was something that had through lines throughout the entirety of the book. It's also like just, it feels like a result of how little diversity there is in so much of the published information and resources about neurodiversity and autism specifically. Um, But there are lots of trans folks that you talk to throughout the book, um, trans folks who are also autistic. And um, so one question I want to start with is, uh, you touched on this a little bit earlier about how masking um, related to what many queer people experience of like being in the closet is incredibly painful, limiting, um, awful. Uh, We all agree it's terrible. Um, As a trans person, what similarities do you see between masked autism and how it feels to be an egg? And maybe you could take a second to let to define what an egg is um, for folks who may not know what that means. Yeah, so an egg is a trans person who doesn't yet know that they're trans or they're kind of in that denial uh, tunnel where they're kind of justifying <laughs> things to themselves or putting off uh, the potential of exploring a trans identity. Um, it's someone who's closeted, basically. And I draw a lot of parallels in the book between being closeted as a queer person and being a masked autistic. And if you're someone who's listening and you're not super familiar with autism or disability justice movements, um, it might be helpful for me to just kind of briefly introduce the idea of neurodiversity. Um, In the autism self-advocacy world, a lot of us really push for people to see autism not as some kind of Uh, brokenness or defect in a person that needs to be cured. But instead, we really advance this idea that it's just a naturally occurring, benign human difference. It's just a source of diversity, uh, a way that some people are built different that should be accommodated in society and embraced as a source of diversity rather than trying to cure it or trying to make us seem less autistic. And Once you are kind of on board with the idea that autism isn't some shameful, terrible thing to be cured, suddenly the kind of disease or disorder framework and even the idea it needs to be diagnosed Mm. doesn't necessarily make all that much sense anymore. Um, And so there's a lot of parallels between autism as a disability um, that's a source of diversity and uh, the movement that we are now decades into of accepting queer people and trans people as just a natural part of human society. Um, It wasn't that long ago that being trans was also considered a mental illness. It was in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders until pretty recently, and it used to be the case that you needed a diagnosis to access surgery or hormones Mm -hmm. um, or to change your gender marker or um, your name even in some places. Um, And we've moved slowly with a lot of backlash recently, unfortunately, uh, towards a model where we don't see queerness as a disease or a disorder. We just see it as something that happens, an inevitable part of humanity that 
we're going to have to fucking deal with and get over our biases and hangups about and learn to embrace because we know that it's better for people when we let them have that autonomy to be who they are and to do with their bodies what they want to do or what feels right and liberatory to them. Mm. And we can draw an almost one-to-one comparison with autism and with accepting neurodiversity. Just because we've been told all our lives that this population of people is sick doesn't mean that it actually is an illness. And as soon as we move towards thinking about how can we accommodate and embrace these people and this population and stop assuming that there's something wrong with them, that opens up a whole realm of adjustments and accommodations in society. And it frees up a lot of people who maybe they're not autistic, but they benefit from a lot of the same accommodations that we need. Um, So I draw these parallels throughout the book. And in my experience, the two things are really impossible to tease apart. Mm. When I didn't know I was autistic, I also was an egg. I didn't know I was trans. I was trying to conform to this way of thinking and feeling that society had imposed on me. And I was also trying to live up to this gender that society had imposed on me. And so learning to break free of all that and giving myself permission to stop conforming to both the gender I was assigned at birth and the neurotypical identity that I was assigned at birth. Um, those are one and the same um, for me um, mm. and for a lot of people in our community, because there are a lot of out trans people in the autistic community. And mm-hmm. I don't think it's a coincidence. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, for, for me as someone who for a long time struggled to even understand that I was trans because I lack a lot of, um, I don't really have painful physical dysphoria in the way that a lot of other folks do, meaning that I don't look in the mirror and feel, um, unwelcome in my body or that my body does not fit me. I was always very comfortable in my body. And so I just thought I wasn't trans. I was just a little gay boy in my head. And I thought all little girls had another little gay boy persona in their head that they just secretly communicated with and manifested. (laughs) It took me a long time to learn that other girls did not relate to that. And that was a big eye opener. But um, I was recently working with my therapist to secure a letter because that is something that I have to do as a trans person seeking top surgery, uh, which is a gender affirming surgery um, on my chest. Um, I have to go to my therapist and she has to write a letter to my insurance company, basically saying, um, and, and we wrote it together and she apologized to me throughout because she had to say things like Spencer suffers from how other people see them. Spencer feels acute discomfort at the idea that someone uh, sees them as a woman. Um, Spencer uh, dressing masculine and binding and starting testosterone to be more male, uh, made Spencer feel better. And therefore they have gender dysphoria disorder. I mean, all of these things, I was kind of like, I mean, I guess, but I <laughs> don't necessarily not relate to being a woman. I'm just not that kind of woman. And I don't, I, I mean, I'm, I'm trans and masculine, but I'm not a man. And mm-hmm. so like so much of it, um, is in the language of pain and suffering. And so I think all of this conversation just reminds us like, who's writing this diagnostic criteria? Cause it's not us. Uh, and that's like an important thing to remember. And to that, as you're saying um, with neurodiversity and autism, also with queerness, like our suffering doesn't have to define us. Um, 
and nor should it like there's so much beauty and freedom and and exciting excitement and peace in embracing who you are um and it doesn't uh, like having to translate it into a way that clinicians can nod and mark on a lift and, and buck on a list and categorize you in order to feel more comfortable with themselves is fucked up. Mm-hmm. So anyway, thank you, Devin, for, <laughs> yeah. for laying that out for us. Um, and so this was something you, you sort of touched on, but um, something else that fascinated me throughout the book was um, how some folks uh, and you included see their autism and transness as being linked um, or being inextricable from each other. How do we talk about that without it feeling like, I think for people outside of the community, maybe it's hard to understand what that means. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit more about uh, what, what the significance is of that, of how trans folks and neurodiverse folks, people who identify as both, see those things as being intertwined. Yeah. One of the most common questions that I get from cisgender people when I'm doing workshops or events about autism is that they ask me why so many autistic people are trans. Why Mm. are those things so strongly associated with each other? Because there is a lot of overlap. There are a lot of trans people in the autistic community. There are a lot of autistic people in the trans community. And I've always kind of bristled at why we're even asking that question because the only reason we would need to explain it is if we thought either of those things were bad or Mm. abnormal or defective in some way. So I used to try and kind of unpack it for people by saying, well, you know, autistic people tend to be less inclined to conform to social rules that don't make sense to them. So they can see through the bullshit of assigned gender and a lot of gender norms. And so they don't go along with that stuff. Uh, They're more likely to be honest. We're also more likely to be whistleblowers um, Mm. when we see something unethical happening. So it makes sense that we are more likely to have the courage to be out or to feel like we have no choice but to be out because of our commitment to our values or to be honest. Um, And that's what a lot of people have kind of posited for why that's the case. But these days, for the most part, when somebody asks me that question, especially if they're cisgender, instead of going into that kind of theorizing, um, I tend to just say, why do we need to explain it? Hmm. Being autistic is fucking cool. Being trans is fucking cool. Like you're welcome that I'm bracing you with both. Like they're both cool shit to be. What's the problem? Um, yes. We know that autistic people are also more likely to be bisexual. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of things that autistic people uh, don't put up with in terms of societal bullshit that um, I think a lot of holistics they conform to expectations that aren't really fitting them either. You know, I've even started kind of moving. I've even kind of started moving away from the term neurotypical and started saying Mm. neuroconforming instead, because I think at the end of the day, is anybody really cis? Is anybody really neurotypical or are they just conforming to what they're being forced to be? And there's some of us who aren't doing that. Um, So yeah, I, I do think that in my case, being autistic means that I have the kind of, they live goggles on. If anybody's seen that movie where you can see, you know, the real meaning behind everything, you can see the bullshit of societal gendering. And so a lot of us feel that way. And a lot of us just say, you know, I refuse to go along with this shit. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and I hope someday that non autistic identified people can get to the place where they feel a little bit more comfortable and courageous being out more often too. Fuck yeah.
Devin, something that you talk about in the book is how, and I quote, autistic people created the concept of fandom. Why do you think it is that nerd communities are often full of autistic folks, often, as you write about in the book, in the leadership or organizing positions? The one reason that it happens is because of the just white, hot energy that is autistic special interests. We are, even though we're stereotyped as being cold and robotic, we are some of the most passionate, obsessive, big-hearted people around. Autistic people, a lot of us, when we love something, we love it hard and we run that shit into the ground, thinking about it, researching it, writing it, making up fan fiction about it, making art about it. Um, and in his book, um, Neurotribes, uh, Stephen Silberman, talks about how long before the internet, we're talking early 1900s, before most people had radios or TV, um, there were already autistic people finding each other through personal ads in the back of science fiction magazines. Oh, wow. And they would travel in the back of railroad cars to meet each other to talk about their favorite science fiction books and nerd out and organize these early proto- science fiction conventions in like the early 1900s. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's really sick. Like the desire to connect over a shared special interest is so propulsive for autistic people, which again, it's funny that we're stereotyped as being antisocial because when we find someone who's like a nerdy little freak about the same stuff we're little <laughs> freaks about, it's like, please, I just want to be around you all the time. I want to talk about this forever. Mm. Um, and we see a long history going up through the early Star Trek conventions in the mid-century up into the present day. Um, autistic people want to connect. They're really passionate, usually about kind of obscure niche subjects. And so they have the energy and the motivation to say, hey, let's get some people together who are also obsessive about this thing. And also, let's think really intentionally about how we can build a space that's approachable for people to engage in this stuff. So I might hate networking and small talk, but I am more than happy to help organize a forum or a Discord server mm. or you know post information about something on a subreddit um, to build that social infrastructure for other people who care about the same stuff as me. And that seems to be the case for a lot of autistic people historically mm. and in the present day. Mm. And... This relationship to niche communities, to fandom, to that white hot passion, um, it's something you talk about grappling a lot with as a young person in the book. Um, you avoided engaging with it and uh, struggled with a lot of shame around it. And then you write about how you, and I quote, decided to make up for the childhood I had denied myself and began attending anime and comic book conventions. There I found autistic bliss all over again. How did engaging in these spaces help spark that renewed self-love for you? Every autistic person's mask, if they mask as neurotypical, looks a little bit different. But for me, um, from a pretty young age, late childhood, early adolescence, my mask was all about not seeming weak and not seeming childish. Mm -hmm. Because up until that age, I was constantly getting reactions from people that I was crying too much, I was too excited about um, the things I was interested in, which back then were things like Legend of Zelda and uh, bat species. I wanted to be a bat biologist, and I had all these colorful glow-in-the-dark t-shirts covered in bat species that I'd wear every Monday to school. And after a certain age, around like fifth grade, that stopped being cute to people, and it mm. started being lame. 
And I really didn't want to be lame and childish and too emotional. And so I became this really jaded, shut down person. And um, crucially, like I, I projected that shame onto other people too. Like I made fun of other people for liking mm. things too much and being too childish. Like I had really internalized and then externalized a lot of noxious shit. Um, so for me, it was really healing as an autistic adult. Once I knew I was autistic to start allowing myself to do some of the things I was most terrified of wanting things like sleeping with a stuffed animal. I was so mm. ashamed that I like wanted to do something as childish as that as an adult, um, going to anime conventions, going to comic conventions, nerding out, going to furry conventions. That was a really liberating space. Midwest fur fest here in Chicago. Um, because you just see all these people who are super joyful and playful and silly. That's a big draw of cosplay and fursonas dressing mm. up as a furry for a lot of people that you get to be this really animated, uh, expressive version of yourself, which if you've been told all your life that you are too much and too passionate about the wrong things, you really tamp that stuff down. Mm. So that's been a major route to healing for me. Those spaces give you community with other people who, again, are obsessive little freakos just like you. <laughs> you get to be really passionate and excited. You get to dress wacky. You get to be really emotive. And you get to like do a little bit of that like healing your inner child. You know, mm. And I'm still such a cynic. I still have such a mask of like uh, not being weak that I still have to say it in like a sarcastic tone yeah, of voice. Yeah. But, like, <laughs> I want to heal my inner child. I want to give them room to run around and play and love things, you know? Like, yes. And so that was my way of doing it. Mm, absolutely. So one more thing I want to touch on on this note, which is an awesome quote that you share from an autistic BDSM organizer named Tisa, who said, people say that the internet is a world for autistics built by autistic people, but most IRL nerdy and kinky subcultures are too. First of all, yes. <laughs> Second of all, um, you touched on this a little bit already, but what do... Why are these spaces, these these niche communities and subcultures so important for relationship building among neurodiverse people? When autistic people make spaces for us and by us, even if they're not literally an autism only space, so things like, you know, BDSM dungeons or fur fest or whatever, we're really intentional a lot of the time about building the tools and the handbook and the social infrastructure to make it accessible for people with our needs. So for example, at FurFest, it is crystal clear at all times who a panel is for, who a panel isn't for in terms of age ranges or mm. if there's going to be any NSFW adult content. Um, they give out these badges that you can wear. Um, I still have one hanging on my wall, actually, that um, <laughs> come in different colors. It's like a stoplight, so you can mm. wear a green badge if you want to welcome people to say hi to you because you want to make friends, which a lot of autistic people we struggle with social initiation. I'm great at carrying on a conversation, but I can't for the life of me start one. Um, so that green badge is really facilitative um, for making a conversation with someone. And there's also a yellow badge that says, only approach me if you know me, and a red badge that says, leave me alone. You know, I'm, I need space. I'm in the middle of an overload or I just want to mm. be kept to myself. So there's just a lot of things like that built into events that autistic people organize because a lot of us we've struggled to understand people we're, we struggle in a lot of busy social environments 
And we also tend to be super analytical. So we're really good at breaking down, okay, here's how I can systematize something as amorphous and confusing as relating to another person. Mm. And here's how we can build rules into place so that everyone knows how they can act, what to do if someone makes them uncomfortable, and how to defend their boundaries. And it is so healing to be in those kinds of spaces. It really allows you to open up to other people. Um, I've made so many friends at spaces that are nerdy and filled with autistic people and were organized by autistic people. It's just, it just completely changes the ecosystem, social ecosystem. Um, and it also just normalizes saying what you need, stepping out of a space when you're overloaded and need a minute to catch your breath and, you know, uh, recharge from social or sensory overload. Um, it just makes you feel less broken because you're finally in a world that was actually built for you. So of course mm. you feel a lot less shame, uh, and you can find a, and connect with other people when you're in that kind of space. Absolutely. So speaking of fandom on a more personal note, um, you share in Unmasking Autism, how playing Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, um, really led you to recognize yourself for the first time in Link, the protagonist. Can you tell us more about what it was about Link that you related to so strongly? There's so much. Um, we do know now from more recent interviews that when Link was designed as a character, he really was intended to be this gender blank mm. slate. And he's such a perfect like encapsulation of androgyny um, that almost anyone can see themselves in him. Mm -hmm. um, lots of boys like Link. Lots of trans women like Link and see Link as a trans woman. Lots of trans boys see Link as a trans boy. Lots of non-binary people see Link as non-binary. <laughs> He can do it all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he encompasses it all. And so that was something that I really attached onto, that he was this like pretty androgynous boy in this little tunic dress thing um, that it was really easy for me to see myself in as a trans egg. Mm. And he's also mute. He doesn't speak. Um, and yet he manages to have this whole life uh, throughout the course of the game where all these people are explaining things to him and directing him where he can go next to kind of make a difference and empower him. And it's, uh, he's kind of a clueless character in a lot of ways, like a lot of silent video game protagonists are. Um, it makes sense just from like how game mechanics work. that You have to have this um, player avatar who doesn't know what's going mm. on. But as an autistic person who sometimes just does not have it in me to speak to people or doesn't know how to engage, the idea that you could just like wrap around and run around and somebody will just like talk to you when you just stand next to them <laughs> awkwardly yes. and tell you what the hell is going on. It's such a dream. Um, I wish life was a little bit more like that. Um, and so it was just a really empowering character. Um, and I think that's part of why Link is such an enduring, beloved character for, for trans people, but yeah. also is just so universally approachable, too. Oh my God. Yes. And PCs are the first allies. You heard it here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, something else you share in the book is how it's a really common autistic experience to identify with fantasy creatures, robots, aliens, animals, etc. Why do you think this is? I think we're taught that to be human is to be neurotypical or again, really to be neuroconforming that you're supposed to feel a certain way, you're supposed to express emotion in a certain way and socialize in a certain way. And when that's the only normal way of being that you know, mm. and you are not that, 
you really feel like you're excluded from humanity. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of us cope with that and express that by thinking of ourselves as like little fairy elves like Link or um, robots or really dreaming of being able to not have a body and not be a human. I know so mm. many autistic people who identify with aliens, robots, mystical creatures, or just want to be like a sentient fog <laughs> that just kind of glides across the world uh, without having to deal with, you know, the trouble of being a human because we've never been allowed to just be ourselves and have that be included in humanity. Mm. Um, and so even though like a lot of those labels and perceptions, like they come with dehumanization, I think it's a way of kind of reclaiming um, and taking pride in our difference um, that a lot of us reach out to. And I do think it's also um, an expression of sensory issues, coordination issues. There's a lot of reasons why many autistic people don't feel at home in our bodies, gender dysphoria. Um, you know, I was in special ed gym as a child. It took me a very long mm -hmm. time to learn to do anything that involved any coordination whatsoever. I had really bad handwriting and have really a hard time physically mirroring other people if they're trying to demonstrate to me how to do a task. I just don't feel at home in my body very easily. And so, um, and that's something that a lot of autistic people experience. Um, and so I think that's also another reason why a lot of us don't feel human or why we identify with creatures and mythological beings is because we feel divorced from physical reality mm -hmm. for a lot of different sensory and motor, motor control reasons. Mm -hmm. So one thing I want to mention is that in the book, um, you include the work of Marta Rose, which I was so excited to see um, for folks. So my familiarity with her work was through, um, she had an Instagram account called Neuroemergent Insurgent, and it's now called Divergent Design Studios. Um, just the first time in my life that I felt like I, that was like my entry point to starting to dismantle uh, this, these ideas and these toxic thoughts I had internally about like what it meant to be neurodivergent and also the way that she um, just sees so much in nature and the patterns around us and, and is able to like memify these really complex big brain ideas into stuff that's like super um, approachable. Um, I'm talking about Marta because in Unmasking Autism, um, you bring up this concept of upending neurotypical approaches to time. Um, and you also illustrate this with a really cool comparison to Katamari Damacy, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, but first of all, borrowing from Marta Rose's work around spiral time, um, what is this First, let's start with what is this idea of industrial time and how does it contrast with thinking of time as a spiral? What does that mean? So industrial time is the very linear um, view of time almost as a productivity as a productivity resource that we have now under capitalism. We see time or we're taught to see time as this thing that flows linearly and is very consistent and is parceled out into work days and work weeks, and there's a very rigid schedule that's kind of imposed upon it. So you are supposed to basically 
force your body and your mind to conform to whatever is on the schedule for that day, to have a really consistent schedule where you are showing up to work, and you're working the full day, and your time and your existence in the world as a living thing that's moving through time is just a means toward productivity. And it's something that's so ingrained in us that questioning it can sometimes make you sound really woo-woo and like hippie-ish and people put up some resistance to it. But if we look throughout human history, that's not really how we've typically viewed time as this industrial resource. It's not this thing that you can control or that you can control yourself to conform to. It's the ebb and flow of nature. It's cyclical. You can't plant seeds when it's not the time of the year to plant. Mm. You can't harvest when it's not the time to harvest. You are at the mercy of nature and the seasons and whether it's a particularly wet uh, summer or spring or whether it's a drought, there's aspects of how time ebbs and flows that even with all of the industrial and capitalistic tools that we have, we still can't control. Mm-hmm. And that used to be how people had to live. There were seasons where you're working really hard and seasons where you're kind of all gathered around the fire inside telling stories and getting drunk and kind of goofing off. Um, and so Marta Rose's work really says we need to stop thinking about time as this parceled out consistent schedule that we can master and that we can master ourselves in order to conform to and start seeing time as this circular, cyclical, spiraling thing again. In nature, there are periods of dormancy where all you are doing is preserving your energy and repairing damage and preparing for the next spring, literally or metaphorically. And then there are seasons of growth. Uh, Or if we take a longer view of it, there's this idea in evolution of punctuated evolution. Um, Mm. Animals and plants, they aren't constantly evolving and changing in really dramatic ways. A lot of times they're kind of on a plateau for hundreds or thousands of years until something happens that provokes them to change and adapt Mm. and potentially evolve. So Marta Rose really says, let's apply that to human life. You're not going to be the same amount of productive every single day and every year of your life. You're going to have years that you're not doing a lot where you're repairing damage and you're healing. You're going to have a stage of your life where you're not going to have as much energy anymore. That's just a fact of human aging and development. And so we need to stop viewing time as a productivity resource and start viewing it as just this inevitable ebb and flow that we can kind of trust and adapt to and move along with. And that means also trusting our bodies and minds when we don't have it in us to just be a perfectly consistent industrial worker bee. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. So how does embracing spiral time benefit neurodivergent folks? And how can we sort of use Katamari Damacy to help us understand that. (laughs) One thing that I really love from Marta Rose's work and something that I'm only really beginning to internalize as someone in my mid thirties is this idea that no pursuit is ever wasted. Mm. Um, So even if you poured several years of your life um, and I'll just use a personal example, writing a lot of fiction and thinking you're going to be a science fiction novelist even if that doesn't end up coming to pass in terms of a big achievement or a book deal or like having a career in that particular field, that time isn't wasted. All of that writing practice 
still pays off in other pursuits that you have in your life. All of that research that you put into studying robotics is going is going to pop up in places where you don't expect it to be relevant. And this is true, really, um, for anything in life that you've cared about and put a lot of energy into learning about. It doesn't have to always be tied to some immediate achievement. You never know who you're going to meet because you share this interest or this past experience. You never know what skill or old obsession that you've abandoned is going to suddenly emerge and be relevant to your life again. And if you just trust that these things aren't linear and that everything kind of eventually does circle and spiral back, um, you can begin to see all of your past experiences as strengths and as data. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's where the Katamari uh, example comes up in the book. Uh, In that game, you're rolling up all of these tiny little pieces of your environment, pencils um, and little bits of dirt on the floor and pop cans. And then eventually the ball gets bigger and you're rolling up desks and cows and bits (laughs) of grass and trees. And that's what life is really like. You're rolling up this ever expanding ball of lessons and skills and past experiences. And those are always with you and in you, even if they don't apply to the pursuit you thought they were going to apply to. And that's something that, has really brought me a lot of peace as I've started to really internalize it as an autistic person, that there's a lot of things I've had to give up on either because Mm. I'm no longer hyper fixated on that special interest anymore, or because I thought I wanted to enter a certain world. And then I found out that world just really wasn't built for me. Mm. Um, So for example, wanting to be a tenure track professor, that world, that publisher Paris perish world is just too punishing. It's not Mm. built for me. It's not good for me. But that doesn't mean that the skills that I developed and the things that I learned on the route to being there aren't relevant to my life. Um, And so uh, this whole idea of everything having a season, everything spiraling back, it can be really helpful for autistic people and other people, really everyone, having an integrated sense of who you are. Um, and that's really where I finished the book, saying that the, that the goal is to have an integrated sense of self, mm. where you're no longer pretending to be something you're not, and you're no longer punishing yourself for the past either. You're just seeing everything that's happened to you as part of a whole that's valuable, mm. um, and kind of having trust in that whole. Mm-hmm. Have trust in that whole. <laughs> That's what we want to leave y'all with. I'm sorry. (laughs) 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 And embrace your freaky little inner alien prince. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Devin, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Uh, where can folks follow you and keep up with your work? Yeah, so my writing is free to read at devinprice.medium.com. Um, that's D-E-V-O-N-P-R-I-C-E.medium.com. And then I am on Instagram and Twitter um, at, at Dr. Devin Price. Awesome. And he's also on TikTok as Dr. Demon Prince. So please yes. follow him there too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Devin, thanks so much for being here. It's been an absolute joy having you back. Yeah, thank you so much for having me back. up for today's session of pixel therapy thank you for tuning in and we hope that listening to our thoughts and feelings gave you some thoughts and feelings of your own if you want more pixel therapy come check us out at patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod where you can snag that monthly bonus episode for just two dollars a month 
plus opportunities to get involved with the community and influence the show directly. If you're not up for contributing monetarily, but you enjoyed this episode, you can show your support for free by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and following us on Twitter and Instagram at Pixel Therapy Pod. That stuff is just as important, and we appreciate it just as much. Remember that Pixel Therapy is a happy member of the But Why Though Podcast Network, so you can support us by supporting them and heading over to butwhythoughpodcast.com. That's though with a T-H-O. Take a peek at the inclusive geek community they're building around pop culture news, reviews, and kick-ass podcasts like yours truly. And you can keep up with all of this stuff and more by visiting our website at pixeltherapypod.com. Finally, since we like to put our money and our energy where our mouth is, we end every episode with a recommended side quest. This week, as we are approaching Pride slash Wrath Month, um, we are excited to talk to you about the National Black Trans Advocacy Coalition. You can find them at blacktrans.org. Established in 2011, the National Black Trans Advocacy Advocacy Coalition is the only social justice organization led by Black trans people to collectively address the inequities faced in the Black transgender human experience. Through their National Advocacy Center and affiliate state chapters, they work daily advocating to end poverty, discrimination in all forms, and inequities faced in health, employment, housing, and education that are rooted in systemic racism to improve the lived experience of trans people. Their work is based in peace building, community education, public policy initiatives, empowerment programs, and direct services. You can find out more, get involved, and donate at blacktrans.org. Thank you for that side quest, Spencer. That is our show for today. So go forth, run a story mission, level up some stats, and don't forget to hug an NPC every now and then. We'll be back soon with some more Pixel Therapy. therapy. Bye-bye.